The time will come when the human race will have to face itself in the mirror and decide what it is to be human. They will have to make a choice. They will face their greatest enemy, an enemy that stops at nothing, listens to no one. They will have to fight for their survival. Nothing is beyond its depraved and immoral intention. It takes many forms. It kills, maims and destroys without remorse. It cannot be understood. It cannot be reasoned with. It cannot be defeated when it is fought head-on in the battlefield. It seeps and writhes its way through society, leaving husks of humanity where once there were people. Men, women, children, all are prey to it. But in the future, the people of the world state that enough is enough. If blood is to be spilled, then it has to be worth the sacrifice. It has to be with the intention of the total and utter extermination of the enemy. All means, laws, powers and weaponry are at their disposal. Nothing must stand in their way. They are the saviors of the human race. They are the destroyers of the enemy. They are the Faith Seekers. The Faith Seekers by Greg James. Available now on Amazon and Lulu, paperback or ebook. Download it now. There are a thousand ways to die, and the faith seekers know them all. Welcome to Doctor Who on Target. podcast where we discuss the target range of classic Doctor Who books from the 1970s and 80s. If you missed Doctor Who on TV in those pre-DVD days, you missed it forever. Unless, of course, you bought the target novelisation. So jump aboard the TARDIS, set the time rotor for late 20th century Earth, and join us as, with a wheezing, groaning sound, we discuss, analyse and reminisce Doctor Who on target. He went to the hull and scratched through the space dirt to the body itself. There's nothing particularly advanced about this material. It's tough, but not impregnable. So much for their female scientists, hmm? Amateurism never impresses me. Well, let's go and see our lady friends. It's no good you standing here admiring the scenery. Hello and welcome to Doctor Who on Target. This is Greg in Swansea. And this is David in Chelmsford. And this week we're going to be looking at Galaxy 4 by William Ems. At the time when this Target novelisation first hit our bookshelves, the complete episodes have been missing from the BBC archive for a number of years. So the only snippet we had was a very short clip that was used in the Who's Doctor Who documentary from 1977. 
However, since those dark days, that short clip has been revealed to be a six-minute segment from episode one, and in 2011, film collector Terry Burnett gave us the entire episode three back, allowing much fan reappraisal, which is where the Doctor Who on Target team come in. Mm. We must decide whether William M's 1985 novel is really, really good or whether the melodramatic elements in the plot are driving us crazy. Oh, you've got to warn me when you're putting these jokes in, David. This is... I had to do it. <laughs> now, my introduction alluded to melodrama, yet it's quite possible that not for the first time I'm being a little bit provocative and unfair. Later in the podcast, we'll talk about the gender politics of this story, I'm sure, Indeed, this might resonate with the current direction Chris Chibnall is taking Doctor Who. But in the meantime, I'm just going to ask you for a quick sounding of the story and also the way it's told. Mm. Well, it's structured following the actual episodic order, if you like, of the of the original series, isn't it? And we've got discs one, two, three, four of the new audio, which echo episodes one, two, three and four of the TV series, mm. complete with the, 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 the correct cliffhangers, I think. Um, mm, and the chapter titles are all the episode titles as well. Oh, yes, of course, yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting. I have to say, I knew virtually nothing about this story, apart from seeing those black and white photos of the Dravians a long time ago but that one the Chumleys a little bit about that I don't know if it's Chumley or Chumbly well I assume Chumbly is a noun but it actually becomes a I guess it becomes a verb because to chumble means to move in a sort of wobbly way yeah I noticed that the language has just got a new word yes <laughs> yeah I don't think they were quite sure themselves really when they were doing everything but uh... probably um it was an accident because the actors inside the costumes couldn't see where they were going or something, I don't know. <laughs> However, when it was uh, refound, that episode three you, you alluded to, I actually went to see it with, well, I, I was about to say with Stephen Moffat. I didn't go with Stephen Moffat, he was there, you know, presenting it. At the showing at Chapter in Cardiff, and as I say, you know, there were quite a few of the Doctor Who Illuminati present and um, it, 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 was, it was great. But I have to say, it hadn't been restored yet, that one for which they apologised. The sound was dreadful and the picture was very washed out, scratchy. And um, so, it. Uh, however, they had restored the picture element of the um the Patrick Troughton when the underwater menace wasn't it they were found together so it stole the show really it was all about the Pat Troughton one because his acting it was a really early one just after Power of the Daleks I it think it was significant because it's the earliest Patrick Troughton episode that we have ah oh, right yes so it just stole the show really and um coupled with this unrestored when they hadn't had the chance to do it yet um, which actually when it came out on DVD they did a fabulous job. I was watching it earlier and it looked absolutely superb <laughs> it did, Yeah it did, if, if you'd have seen that one David you, you'd be mm-hmm. quite shocked, it was in very bad condition and the sound, mm-hmm. gosh it was very very scratchy But um, so again we saw that but it didn't um, jump out at me at the time as being uh something which you know i was going to be really fond of in the future and i have to say and i'm i'm 
you know, I, I don't want to be a downer on this story, but I wasn't that looking forward to reviewing it. Oh. However, I think my opinion might have changed after listening to the new audio version. Good. Mm. When we discussed The Highlanders not so long ago, we said that the storytelling was insufficiently nuanced for us to regard it as an absolutely top-notch target novel. We did, yeah. But actually, I found this one really different. Yeah. In terms yeah. of the language William Ems uses... And the wider references he makes, I think at points in the book, he, he makes reference to Plato. And also he speaks about Bertrand Russell. Oh. It's funny you should say that the story turned round for you. Was it at the end of the audio that it turned round? Because I felt that it started stronger than it finished. You know, my note says this is faded after a strong start. The real are clearly destined to survive. And the Doctor's solution to them escaping the planet is quite straightforward. And so the build-up to their salvation, as well as the Dravin's well-signposted destruction, for me, anyway, it became rather protracted and uninteresting. Ah, oh. well, that that's interesting, because when you gave your reasons why it faded out at the end, I, I, I completely agree with, with what you said there. It, it does. I mean, you know, the last disc going into it, we've got this... Um, you know, it's all solved, it's all done, off they go. And yes, I agree with you, plot-wise, mm. it, it, it was fair, fairly run-of-the-mill, really, wasn't it? We say it was run-of-the-mill towards the end, but I genuinely thought that the first two discs were excellent. Mm, me too, yeah. And I can almost tell you the point at which the story started to go wrong for me was when the rills started to appear as themselves. And funny enough, that coincides with the episode that we have, episode three. So it's is it when Vicky first goes in and meets them? Is well, that... I think it's a little bit later because, you, you know, you get all this business. William Ems is always trumpeting what a benign species the Rills are. And, and I thought, hang on, because their spaceship is armed, yeah. their robot servants are armed, mm. and towards the end of the book... A starving soldier judged incapable of adapting to life on the real planet is anaesthetised to await this pain-free death in the inevitable explosion. Oh. Now, I found that last act of pragmatism somewhat cowardly. Mm. And actually, I thought it was crueler than taking responsibility for killing her there and then. So I have to say, I did find their status as benign beings rather incongruous with the evidence that we were given. <laughs> but I suppose that the moral at the heart of the story is remarkably simple, which is not to judge on appearances. Because in this one, all the pretty people are bad and all the ugly people are good. I'm not going to say that's how it plays out in life, but it's, it's mm. a very simplistic tale, not to judge by appearances. What, what's so fascinating about this story is, I mean, the words which you were using to say, to criticise the story inconsistencies you know and so forth and this is the thing with it it is full of inconsistencies because as you've already mentioned we've got you know you mentioned about the, the Plato and Bertrand Russell being mentioned and some of the language is really interesting in it really but then we have this complete reversal of from you know really artistic and intellectual to this sort of humdrum run-of-the-mill Story. Can you launch the real spaceship? Well, that rather depends on whether this cable burns out. <laughs> None of us think that cable's going to burn out. Oh, sorry, it's burnt out. <laughs> that would that would have ended it far quicker. Yes, yeah. <laughs>
this is probably stretching it as usual, but we use the word didactic a lot yeah. when we podcast. And uh, when the word didactic comes up, I always think of um, German East German playwright Brecht. This this concept of everyone having to pull together and work collaboratively, I thought Brecht could have written that in a play. This is great. Yeah. But then yeah. I thought, well, William Ems, it turns out that William Ems was a school teacher who oh. wrote the occasional television script. So I shouldn't really be at all surprised that this is a didactic tale at all. You know, I think it's time to get out the worm can opener now because we've warmed mm. up and here we go. I'm opening the can of worms. You see, <laughs> do you agree with me that there was more than a little casual misogyny on show throughout this piece? Not only concerning the doctor's interactions with the women, but also in the way that those attitudes influence Stephen. Or is Marga just an evil being irrespective of her gender? But before you answer, I want to play you some clips that I think will exemplify the tone of William M's writing and the sorts of issues that I'm alluding to. The doctor grew testy. You could all be wrong. And this planet might last for another billion years. We do not make mistakes like that. Really? Then yours is a very rare species indeed. In all my travels, I've never come across anyone or anything that wasn't capable of error. Even I have been known to make the odd mistake. And if I might say so, you don't look like any particular sort of genius to me. He waved absently in the direction of the rigid Dravins. And you surround yourself with poor half-wits like these? No, no, no. Your performance does not match up to your high opinion of yourself. You'd better let me run my own tests for you. I'm a scientist woman. I know about these things. Marga only stared at him and loathed him. He knew he hated the woman, and he knew that it was not just because she had proved so strong, but he really disliked her, and the temptation to do her a serious injury was almost irresistible. If he yielded to it, he would feel a lot better, but not later, he reminded himself. Not later. Then would come the misgivings, the remorse. Never before in his life had he fought a woman. It was not an experience he would choose to repeat. Yet his finger still itched on the trigger. He viewed the supine Marga and said very gently, The next time we run across each other, step aside. My good breeding is leaving me. Well, it's something, you know, incongruous is, is the term, which, because it's so strange that, you know, William Mems has come up with this idea of, uh, you know, first of all, reversal of um, thinking that, you know, everything that's beautiful is, um, you know, good and everything that looks horrible is evil. And he's examined some of that, you know, rather clunkily. But when it gets on to the to the issue of misogyny, well, as we, you know, it it's shot through with it, you know. It's, it's really strange in that... He's attempting to tackle something, it seems, to look at the, the these ideas, and yet it's full of it. And I don't think it can all be attributed to just being the late 1960s. I mean, what do you think, David? 
Well, I think maybe it's been slightly ratcheted up than it was on the television because in one of the clips, the Doctor sort of snaps back at Marga and makes a point of saying, I'm a scientist woman, as as you just heard. And yeah. he that's actually the surviving clip from episode one that we can see. And, yeah. and he doesn't add the woman on the end of it. William Hartnell oh. doesn't say that. But perhaps he's just... I don't know. But then I, then I thought, well, I, I need to think of a defence for this sort of language. And I thought, well, the Doctor must be so clever that invariably when he meets someone, they will have a lower intellect than his. And so I think possibly his frustration could be coming out there. He could he could just be feeling tormented by the fact that people around him are failing to to um understand reasonably simple concepts. And I think that might set him on edge. But it does sound you've used the word clunky and I, and I totally agree with you. It it almost sounds shoehorned just mm. to sort of ratchet the battle of the sexes thing up a little bit. Just to intensify it. No, I, I completely agree with you, David. We, we've got that. I mean, okay. I mean, I, I think it sounds to me like you're trying to perhaps cover up for our hero, the Doctor here, with his, uh, you know. I mean, that use of the word woman is very clearly intended as an insult. And I think what what it says is what it means, to be perfectly honest. You know, it's a we we know the way woman is, it's meant as an insult. And that's really sad that he's decided to 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 do that. Whether whether it's consciously or unconsciously. I mean clearly as you've you your research has shown it, it's it's um it's different from the store the televised story. So mm-hmm. he's either done this unconsciously or made um a deliberate choice to do it. Now this was written in the 1980s, wasn't it? I think this. This yes, this came out mid 80s. Mid 80s. So yeah, that would be a strange time after the huge feminist wave of the 70s to want to push back on something. Which but is... I think you are talking. What are you talking here politically in this country? Thatcher has just basically won. She's won the 83 election on the back of a war. Yeah. Um. Yeah. She. You know. She is. Um. She splits opinion. And and actually, yeah. to this day, even though she's dead and gone, she still splits opinion. Mm, and and it yeah. just it just made me wonder if he was trying to portray Margaret's sort of ruling with this Thatcheresque iron fist, and so the Doctor is naturally um, opposing that sort of totalitarian way of doing things. So so perhaps mm. he does want to take her down a peg or two. But as you say, I'm desperately trying to. Uh, justify (laughs) we've just got to say we've just got to hold our hands up and say these are different times we're we're reading this when i think about it in 1985 it's actually quite a long time ago yeah yeah i was a teenager then (laughs) (laughs) i'm not now yeah me too me too it is a long time ago and um it it is quite shocking when we look back at times i mean we've We've looked at 1960s episodes of Doctor Who and, of course, you know... Well, this is a 1960s episode of Doctor Who, but I mean uh, target novelizations written in the 1960s. And uh, we've, uh, you know, the, the, the misogyny or the... You know, it's been, it's been very apparent, you know, it's very apparent mm. and sadly. But I will say... Um, 
I found it fascinating nonetheless that if you think back to this time that he was actually trying to examine it and look at it. Mm. So in a way you could say that maybe he was not being ahead of his time but maybe he was right at the beginning of trying to look at it and get something up on TV that at least addresses it, has an idea about it. But unfortunately, um, I mean, you mentioned earlier about um, him ratcheting it up. And I think with Stephen, because I I really like the character of Stephen, Mm. but some of the things he does in this story are not politically correct. Again, and this is something I didn't realise until I researched, But apparently a direction in which the show could have gone in these early days, there was some suggestion that William Russell would leave the show and Jacqueline Hill would stay on. Really? So that would have given you Barbara on her own. And I did hear, I think it was, um, might have been story editor Donald Tosh, but somebody implied that Stephen's dialogue in this story could well have been originally written for Barbara. Which, in a way, mm. makes it even stranger. Yeah, yeah. You see, I think this this is the thing, isn't it? When we've uh, we've already come across this problem when they they they're changing over characters, as we talked about with the uh, with with the introduction of Jamie. Ben's lines were then transposed onto Jamie's, and they didn't sit true. And then Ben had some of his good lines taken away. It was all. So I, I, I can see that. But perhaps can... this is written too soon for Stephen to have his own distinct character. The other thing I think you could argue is that Marga is actually an equal opportunities hater. She's actually a misanthrope. She doesn't seem to like anyone. No. She despises the doctor because she can't lose to someone of his physical, sort of, of his age and gender. But she's yeah. equally contemptuous of her own subordinates. And I just wondered, this this idea of having the blonde bombshell villains, I I just wondered, is he making some sort of allusion to the Aryan vision of a master race here? Because when Mm. we think of females, when we think of Mother Earth, I think possibly the early religions were were all sort of maternal, weren't they? They were, yes. The Earth has always been female. Yeah. So the Earth should nurture and protect and, and give you succour. Which is yes. what a mother does, or what a mother should do. Yeah, no, no. Absolutely. And so, so to to actually take this character, because there's a point on disc three, and this is again where I started to lose my temper with this. Um, there's a, it shows you Marga being a victim of her political superiors. Oh yes. And I'm saying, yes. oh please, please, Mr. Ems, do not pretend that she is the victim of a higher power. She is just plain evil. Yes, you know, yeah. it's like saying, oh, Macbeth's a bit of a sod, but he does have some good points. No, he doesn't. He's just evil. <laughs> That's really interesting you mentioned Macbeth, because when you were talking about um, mothers and giving succour, and so I immediately thought of Lady Macbeth, where, of course, Shakespeare um, again reverses her maternality, if that's a word, you know. And I was thinking, so it's interesting you say Macbeth there because we can't excuse Lady Macbeth for what she did and we can't excuse Marga, I don't think, for her behaviour and actions to everyone, like you say. So I thought, I I completely agree with you, when that um, little piece came out, that again seemed shoehorned in, didn't it? 
I, I think so. It, it mm. seemed there. It was like, hold on, where's where's this come from now? Where you're <laughs> trying to give her redemption from what she's doing? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. It didn't. It's just evil. Yeah, just 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 evil, and and also I think rather one-dimensional compared to. And this is what I thought was one of the paradoxes of this story. And you, you, I don't. I'm really interested to hear your opinions on this. Because I became rather sympathetic towards the Dravian soldiers. It's funny you should say that, because when I said about being cross, that the soldier had been, a judgment had been made on that soldier's ability to live on the real planet, and I said that was cowardly just to sort of knock her out and wait for her to be destroyed, I felt that they were basically children. And I also felt that the way... Maureen O'Brien portrayed them was excellent. Do you know, I that was one of my revelations with Maureen O'Brien, was I thought she did the voice work for the Dravians and much of the rest of the voice work really, really well. She really conveyed um, a, a characterisation to these characters who, let's be honest were, you know, are pretty one-dimensional in that sense. I would far more readily accept the soldiers as victims of a higher power than I would accept Marga. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree with you completely with that. And uh, it, it's fascinating because, you see, once again, we have, you know, these concepts being brought in because they, they, they are clones, I think, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're testy-produced clones. They They don't look quite alike on television but they they are supposed to be yes yeah because i thought i mean i've I've got down here in my notes this whole cloning idea because it, it struck me um we've got vicky wondering um whether their ore of marga was put there in the cloning process or whether it was instilled afterwards and she says she thought it must have been a terrible upbringing um, we've, you know, it says it was odd that the only emotion the Dravian minions had revealed was that of fear, and that only of Marga. The Chumblies had frightened them not at all in either of their encounters, but Marga was an altogether different proposition. Vicky wondered if they were test tube bred in such a way that the awe was born in them, or if it was instilled after birth. If the latter was the case, she felt sorry for them. It must have been a terrible upbringing. Mm. That's great, David. That's good writing, isn't it? Yes. And um, I just thought that was fascinating. It stayed with me throughout there. And the more that um, Maureen O'Brien, I was about to say Vicky then, (laughs) the more that Maureen O'Brien enunciated their frailty in their... What do you say? It was a frailty in the voice? They were childlike, weren't they? They, They... Because they didn't have a moral compass, they didn't actually understand that they were doing wrong. Yes. They were sort yes. of pre the age of criminal responsibility, i.e. Oh, a child. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting you've said that, actually, because uh, it, it was on the edge of my thought, you know, trying to describe how are these people. And, of course, I, I had words like innocence and... But child is perfect because that is... How they were, they have their minds haven't been allowed to develop to become adult. No, they haven't. It's fascinating. I, I just thought, 
I was so impressed with um, because with Maureen O'Brien's reading and, like I say, characterization of it. Because she started off, I I was rather, you know, I was quite impressed with her starting off. But some of the way she characterized the Doctor is a bit of a doddery old man, isn't it? Right. And right. I, yeah, I, I felt and I felt a little bit of a strange tone to mm. his voice the way she mm. did it which you know I, I I but I'm gonna forgive because okay that's the way she's chosen to do the doctor it's not what I would like but everything else she does is really really good mm. did, did you feel that David or well I did and I, I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the podcast but before I go and put the worm can opener back in the cupboard, <laughs> I want to lay another huge question on you, which I think our listeners will be very interested to hear your response to. And it is this. I have written, whilst highly unlikely to be used as the template for the 13th Doctor, do you think that Galaxy 4 has anything to offer the new show in terms of how it portrays female characters? Can you see merit in making the new Doctor overtly masculine like Margaret, Or should the Doctor be so gender neutral that it no longer matters whether an actor or actress inhabits the role? Wow, that, that you've brought this bang up to date, haven't you? <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> that's really interesting, actually, David. Um, you know, that you, you've taken that from this story and, and sort of transposed it to our times here, yeah. Do you know, could it offer a lesson? Well, Jodie Whittaker has got some very difficult times ahead of her, I think, in that she's got to now formulate the character of the Doctor. She's got to win over people who, um, you know, think that he is male and should only be male. And she's got to... There, there is going, I'm certain of it, to be a very large female audience for for the for her character of the doctor and she's going to have to impress them she can't alienate them oh bit of a pun mm. there sorry um so can she take any lessons from this well i think something she can take from it is not to do a marga that's for <laughs> sure <laughs> because that one dimensional character a, a bit of a bit of a bit of a Oh, I don't know. How would you describe it? A bit of a woodcut reading of what it is to be a strong woman. I think it it mustn't come through in the twenty first century in Jodie Whittaker's characterization. She's got to look for how a woman would be as the Doctor. But when the Master became the Missy, in many ways, a lot of the cruelty became intensified. So she was out-masculining a male master. Oh, she became okay. very psychotic. So do you think that the diametric opposite of that should happen with the Doctor? She should become even kinder and more benevolent and and um, more motherly? Oh. I have always liked to think, and I'm pretty sure I've said this repeatedly, the gender <laughs> of the Doctor should be neutral. And it's only mm. the attractiveness and the interaction with these new companions that has made gender important. I, I would like to think that um, Jodie Whittaker will give us something different, give us something very different to everything that's gone before. But 
beyond the fact that she's an actress in in what has traditionally been a male role. She, I mean, she can't fail to give us something different with that background. But I, I mm. would like to... I think the Doctor has become too godlike in yeah. modern Doctor Who. And I'd, I'd like to see the benign alien return. And mm. this is a real chance to do that. Not because yeah. she's a woman, but because the the show is quite clearly changing direction in a very significant way. So let's have the Wanderer back and let's have less of the God. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly there, David. I, I, it, it's something which has irked with me <laughs> since it started in the sort of late tenant era, wasn't it? Which was this, mm. um, this God-like, um, uh, you know... We've never had that. That's not the Doctor. It's never, ever been the doctor to be like that and and i think um what what's the point of that the minute you you've got this godlike character well we're in marvel territory then it's all the superhero no, the doctor isn't like that and isn't that what we all i'm actually going to challenge you again oh right okay i'm going to say that what i found surprising about galaxy 4 was that it made several references to the doctor's agnosticism over the belief in a Christian God. Oh. Because you get a really... And I've actually got the sound bite queued up here, so we'll just have a listen to it. Assuming there was a God, he seemed to look upon the Doctor with an ironic eye. Benevolence would make a nice change. A spell of peace and quiet somewhere, with nothing at all happening, and no one threatening his tranquility of mind. And he had to admit that for himself he was a serene person, not given to such trivial emotions as impatience or anger. Indeed, it sometimes crossed his mind that he could be taken as a model for all life forms to shape themselves upon. Human life wasn't long enough, he thought. No sooner given than taken away, with insufficient time to learn what was necessary or do what had to be done. He dismissed the thought. There was nothing he could do about it. He wasn't God, simply something of a clown in his own eyes, trolling about through time and space, seeking the final truth as he inhabited one body after another, and yet with the dull feeling that that final truth would remain forever beyond his reach. And so you see, his own self-image wavers from being of little significance to having a godlike status. Mm. But he does have doubt, he does have self-doubt, but he also has a degree of superiority. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting, actually. It's, uh, I, I wonder, again, we've mentioned about the changes that the author, William Ems, has made in this 1985 rewriting of the story, if you like. Do you think he's been... Uh, you know, at it again, so to speak. <laughs> I think that he has probably been able to take advantage of seeing later Doctor Who and has grafted some elements from that into his story that would not have existed 20 years previously. One of the most obvious places that that happens is throughout the book, there are a, a lot of references to the Doctor's physical frailty and his foreknowledge that his time in his current body is nearing an end. Oh, yes, I noticed those, yeah. Now, did yeah. you find those interesting, or did you find them disconcerting, given that Galaxy 4 isn't even a regeneration story? And 
Before you answer that, I do actually do again have a clip that will show our listeners the sorts of things I mean. The Chumbleys had a surprising turn of speed, and the party had to run to stay ahead of them. The doctor soon wishing that he had found a younger body to inhabit. There was not a lot to be said for this one. In no time at all, his hearts were hammering, his lungs labouring like a pair of ancient bellows, and his limbs moving only with the greatest of reluctance. This was an old body, and there was nothing to be done about it. Are you all right, doctor? The doctor emptied his lungs, then inhaled deeply. I think so. I'm just not very good at physical exercise these days. This body's <coughs> wearing out. Oh, it should last a while yet, Stephen said. God bless you for those words of comfort. Yes, I remember that clip. And also, yeah, I remember the bit. He found himself wishing that he could retain his own mind and this time occupy a body more like Stephen's, compact, muscular, capable of far more than this decrepit creation he was using at the moment. He was tired of it. Sooner or later, renewal would come, and he prayed that when the time came, he would be better served. Something comfortable and capable was what he longed for, something able to do more of what he asked of it. He mused and pondered on the whimsical ways of fate. (laughs) He uses the word renewal rather than regeneration, which is absolutely first doctor language. Yeah, it says... So an implication there that this isn't the first doctor, that the doctor has inhabited a number of previous bodies and and possibly some of them were female. We don't know. Mm, mm, But it does seem that he's sort of retrofitting, doesn't it? William Ems is brought in a later concept that didn't exist when he wrote his original story. Yeah, you're absolutely right there, David, and it's great that you've pointed that out because it was something I had made a note and it it occurred to me at the time, I thought, oh, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, retrofitting, I mean, that's exactly what it is. I'm not a fan of it, to be perfectly honest. Well, you better not tune in at Christmas then because there's going to be plenty of it going on. Oh, of course, because, (laughs) oh, no, I just realised now you've said that. Well, they seem to have refilmed bits of the Tenth Planet, don't they? They've got Ben and Polly there, haven't they? I, I, I heard on the radio yesterday that somebody's been cast as Ben. It's not Danny Dyer, is it? And relax. Do you do you know though? Actually, oh my gosh, it really it is going to be a case of retrofit. What are they going to do? Mm, well, well, one thing's for sure: whatever they do, the Doctor Who on target team will be there to give its judgment. Oh, absolutely. The, that We're going to be doing that the very next day, David, aren't we? We're not going to hang about. We might even cancel Christmas to do that. <laughs> it might happen. <laughs> it might happen. I, I like the fact that you um, you correctly pointed out the word renewal was used in the language. He got that, so he did get that spot on. And so it's it's interesting that William Ems has gone to the trouble to he's deliberately wanted to but do this bit of retrofitting, but he's has used the correct terminology as you you've said, but then it goes off a bit. I mean, then he moves and wondered pondered on the whimsical ways of fate. It's like you say, it goes from one to the other. One one minute he's yeah, it's, it's, there's it, no. It does, and and there's another bit where he's being very whimsical, where he wonders if he has a personal guardian angel. 
And you think, you well, that's not a scientific belief. That no. requires faith. Yeah. yeah I'm not saying it's an exclusively Christian concept, but I am saying it, it's, it's a non-scientific one. So he wavers between intense pride in his status as a man of science yeah. and, and sort of flirtations with some very non-scientific concepts. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting because I, I think the problem we've got with this story is we, we have William Ems who, yeah, what, what struck me is he's, he's clearly very well read um, he's intelligent. He can write some lovely prose, some very mm. good prose. But he then goes completely off the rails with the narrative, um, uh, you know, the narrative path, if you like. You know, he, he, he swerves suddenly from one way to the other. They're not consistent mm. in in his the way he's no. dealing with things, you know. I mean, that in itself is quite a whimsical way of going about things, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, but another thing I've got here as well is on my notes the you know you mentioned earlier about female attractiveness, and um, I've got a little quote here where it says they would have been attractive to any man were it not for their stony faces. Mm. Yeah, and also he was fed up with attractive women being domineering, and uh, another one is they were dolls, and I just so think... doll is a very sixties term, isn't it? It is a very sixties, possibly term. even earlier. Actually, it might be a fifties term. Yeah, it's, yeah but it sounds very old fashioned in the modern world. We know that. Yes, yeah, but I thought it fitted. The word doll fitted really nicely with the idea of them being clones. And and having a fixed face. Yes, yeah. Sort of Stepford Wives thing going on. Exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly a Stepford Wives thing, yeah. Because it, it, it's interesting, you know, how are the, the Dravians portrayed here, you know? This, because we have them all... Because Marga isn't a clone, but she looks very much like them, doesn't she? Well, they're obviously cloned in the image. As I say, there, there's obviously a reason why these villains are, are blonde females and I don't quite know what it is. Yeah. Because it's way before Thatcher. Yeah. It's, yeah. I can't think what they're modelled on. If it's not, as I say, if it's not an allusion to the Aryan race, I don't know what they could be. To the Aryan race. That's fascinating. Yeah. So let's bring the discussion <laughs> back to Maureen O'Brien. Now, I sensed a great deal of enthusiasm from you regarding her reading because one of the questions I was going to ask you is, do you think Peter Purvis might have made a better choice? I doubt whether you do. How do you feel about that? Oh, I know. I, I think um, much as I love Peter Purvis's narration, I, and I want to hear more of him doing these targets, I know I, I'm more than happy with Maureen O'Brien. I mean, I came with no real preconception of what um, her na narrative skills would be like, you know, and... Um, as I said, I wasn't really looking forward to it because she's an unknown in that sense, mm. you know. And um, I'm apart from, as I said earlier, the, uh, the the way she portrayed William Hartnell's Doctor, which um, I, you know, it sort of grated a bit with me. It didn't fit in really well. Everything else, I love the mm. job she's done, and she she just portrayed those poor, and I'll use your term, those childlike Dravians. Beautifully. Yes, I mean, I agree with you. I think 
maybe Peter Purvis, who, by the way, is reading The Ark, I discovered today. So we will hear some more from him. But, you know, he may have had the edge, obviously, with the character of Stephen and possibly with the character of the Doctor. But I think the reading of the audio is justified by Maureen O'Brien's delivery of, obviously, Vicky and also the Draven characters as well. But one thing I do want to, to say, you know, when the Rills are speaking... Oh. Do you think that was still more in O'Brien's voice? And unless it's her voice that has been substantially treated, but that real voice worked really well as well. I don't know who did it. Must assume it's her because there's no other narrator credited. Yeah. Do you know, it's interesting actually because what was striking me um, when I was listening to the voices, we had that bit of a benevolent God feel to it, didn't we? With that real voice. Yes, it was very sing-song and dreamy and yes, I, I see where you're coming from with that. I really want to mention, if I can, that last scene again. So not, not necessarily the, the last disc, but those last scenes. You know, you mentioned about the chimneys, um, the, the incapacitated... The real... It? Oh, sorry, the real incapacitated the um, uh, the Dravian soldier and the sympathy that we had been built up for for her for them, um, you know, was really felt when th- th- there was a description there. And it was very well written of this planet starting to explode with the the fire, and it was sh- there was a description there of her in flames, wasn't it? Her hair in flames. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so. That's where you, I'm. I'm assuming, because you, your words were that it was very cruel. It was even crueler, given that we've been told repeatedly that the being that's responsible for it is entirely benign. Yes, yeah, it's really it's it's strange, isn't it? We we don't have this, um, you know. There's no consistency, like we've said, really, with it with the trains of thought or the way it's going through with there, but. Nevertheless, it still achieves some really interesting points and some very uh, because there was there was a a bit of an awakening, if you like, in the consciousnesses of these mm. Dravian soldiers. When they were remember they were talking about um, friendship and mm. um, wasn't there a point where they say that they went back for them? Why would they do that? She was talking mm. to Marga. Do you remember mm. that? Yes, I do. Yeah. That was quite touching, wasn't it? Where they were saying, why why would they do that? Well, because they've not been taught any um, ethics, have they? They're, they're just yeah. like children, run purely on instinct and what they want. Yes. And there are times that say, can we kill him now? Yeah. They don't yeah. actually see it's morally wrong. It's just what they want to do. And they're mm. asking permission. Yeah. Like a child. So you're absolutely right. It's incredible, isn't it? It's, it's really got something going for it, this story. I, I'd love to see it return. Yes, I think we can say it's a lot more nuanced than the previous review that we did. Oh, yes. Shall we have a quick word about the technical presentation of these discs? Oh, of course, yes. The technical presentation. Now then, I think they're getting better and better. I, I I honestly feel that um, this isn't up there with the best, but there was nothing really offensive <laughs> in the technical presentation. <laughs> you mean nothing that grated? Yes, yeah, that that's what I mean. Actually, yes, yeah. It was. Well, I, what did you feel, David? I thought that it was proportionate. I mean, we've mentioned the treatment of the voice and the male, seemingly male voice that came on to do the reels. Mm-hmm. I thought that the sound effects were as I say, all appropriate. 
I don't remember anyone falling over with any great power. No. <laughs> so I don't remember laser battles or anything of that nature. So I have to assume that um, the soundscape was fit for purpose. Yeah, yeah. I th I think we don't want to be over enthusiastic because it's not the best. But like I said, it's um, because I notice our terms are quite measured, isn't it? Fit for purpose and uh, proportionate. And I think that's right. There were there were even when we had the um, that end scene, which was quite dramatic, and the words were very very well crafted. Mm -hmm. They weren't overtaken by enormous explosions and and so forth. It was quite. Mm -hmm. It was quite, as you say, really in proportion, wasn't it? Appropriate. Appropriate. Yes. Yeah. I. I, I think um, I've noticed as well. Um, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we get in a little bit of consistency across the range now, where when they are actually speaking in character. There's a little distance and echo put on their voices. We've seen that several times now, haven't we? I think we're going to give this a C plus for soundscape, aren't we? Yeah, oh yes, yeah. I I was quite pleased with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it works really hard this next academic year, it could go to a B minus by the next audio. <laughs> Tune in and we'll see. But right. well, I know yeah. this is going to rile you because. When we last spoke about a target book, I was yeah. quite struck by your strength of feeling about the cover of The Highlanders, painted by occasional target artist Nick Spender. Now, mm. the cover of Galaxy 4 is painted by prolific Doctor Who artist Andrew Skilleter and bears some of the hallmarks of his photorealistic style. And what I want to know is, did this engender any warmer feelings in you? Yes, yeah. Or do you think you might have been unnecessarily condemnatory about Nick Spender? Um, well, now let's look at it. I'm, I'm staring at it here. Lovely presentation from BBC Audio with the on, on the case reproduction of it. It's not jumping out at me. I, I can't help feel it. I mustn't be rude here. I mustn't be rude. But... Um, there's nothing there on the cover. To, I mean, where does it say Doctor Who? It doesn't say Doctor Who. It doesn't say Target. It doesn't say anything really on this cover, apart from, I will say, the background he's done of the planet exploding has merged beautifully with a, a John Pertwee-esque type time tunnel sequence. I mean, that that's nice, even though it, it's not exactly the William... Well, I don't know. It could be... I've definitely seen a bigger version of this cover Have you? than the Target book. And actually, there's an awful lot of detail in those faces. I was actually quite impressed when I looked at the detail that Andrew Skilleter had actually got into the painting. But you're absolutely right. It loses everything when it's sort of four inches square on yes. the CD or however big CDs are. But... Um, you, yeah. you don't get to see any of that detail, and it's a bit of a shame. I wouldn't say it's um, a favourite cover of mine by a long chalk. No. I think it actually has more merit than it's able to demonstrate at the size at which it's reproduced on the packaging. Yes, yeah. It's quite interesting, actually. Now, I've zoomed in on my computer here to this, and I, you're absolutely right. There is actually a lot of detail in the hair, and the way they've got the hair details and the faces. So yeah. that's why I said it bore some of the hallmarks of his photorealistic style, because that that was totally his style, wasn't it? And he seemed yeah. to be able to paint anything. Yes. And yeah. make it look like a photograph. Yeah. 
It's just a pity. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not doubting the skill of this. I say the background is mm. very, it's very subtle and nice actually the way it's blended that um, time. Because if you look at the background, the 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 planet could be the sort of time tunnel we used to travel in with with Doctor Who as well, couldn't it? I just think for a story which needs to be sold, um, we've got the Chumbleys, you know, which don't feature on the cover. The TARDIS doesn't feature, the Doctor doesn't feature, none of the companions feature. We've got Peter Purvis, who's a very, very well-known uh, British television uh, presence. Uh, there was a lot of opportunity there, and I just feel that having two 60s-looking women in short skirts and blonde hair holding two big guns pointing at you isn't... I, I don't know. It doesn't. It doesn't. It didn't draw you in. That's what you're saying. I think that's what I'm saying. Yes. Okay, Greg. I am fascinated to know what score you are going to award Galaxy Four by William Ems. Do you know the the more I think about this, because this is a story to get you thinking, despite its faults. You know, it's got a lot going for it. Um, do you remember we had a bit of a um, what's the word? A bit of a revelation. A bit of a with the Macra Terror. Mm. And um, I think we sort of saw far more in that than we originally thought was there. And I, I, I'm wondering, are we having the same experience? Epiphany is the word I'm looking for. Yes, epiphany. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, are, are we having the same with this? You've said it. I think William Ems has added to the layers of his original story. And I think he... By and large, I think his writing style is interesting. Hmm. I've I've already said the bits that grated with me, but the the book skips along very very merrily for the first couple of discs. Begins to lose its way a bit in disc three, and sort of disc four is a bit perfunctory, really, because we all know how it's going to end. Yes, yeah. It's it's a bit of a conundrum this one because there are elements which um, I would give it a low score and elements which I'd give it a high score, relatively. So I'm going to be quite generous because especially of the, the BBC audio presentation, I think, with, with um, Maureen O'Brien, which I, I rather like, I'm going to give it, I'm sort of pinching myself, but I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. 7 out of 10. It's funny you should say that because... I also am inclined to be quite generous with my scores on occasion. But I, I really do think that as an overall package, as you say, there's there's some really good moments in the writing. It's a really great product. It's read really well for the majority. Anyway, I know you had some issues with the first Doctor's portrayal. But I think it merits a strong 7 out of 10. Oh, we're in agreement. Mm. Excellent, excellent. I wonder how interesting it would be if the driving characters actually returned, offsetting them against the 13th Doctor. I've got to be honest, David, I, I think that's a brilliant idea. I absolutely love that idea to bring the... I mean, can you imagine the outrage? The, the internet would melt with the Doctor Who fights. <laughs> it, might be, it might make for a very interesting story because it would allow them to be revisited in a modern context. I know, I absolutely... I wasn't being ironic. Oh, I, honestly, I mean, it's true about the internet melting. Can you imagine the outrage? But 
I genuinely think it's a brilliant idea because look what could be done with them now with these characters. Oh, yes. Chris Chibnall, that is Doctor Who on Target's gift to you. And on that bombshell, I really do think I need to return the worm can opener to the kitchen. But I also need to know from you what we'll be doing next. Will we be doing a new release or will we be doing a classic release on our next podcast? I can't negotiate, David. Just this very month has been released from BBC Audio, the Patrick Troughton classic, The Web of Fear. So... If you join us next podcast, you should be hearing our review of The Web of Fear. Please tweet us at Doctor Who on Target. That's DR Who on Target. Or email us at Doctor Who on Target at gmail.com. That's the end of this episode, and I would like to thank BBC Audio and Penguin Random House for kindly supplying us with preview copies and to Smerin's Antisocial Club for the use of their version of the Doctor Who theme tune. The biggest thank you goes to you, our listeners.